You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. It's so important for us to never lose the wonder of the cross. You know, it's so good to be in a church that loves the gospel. And you don't have a gospel if you don't have the cross, right? I mean, what do we have? We have nothing without the cross. It was at the cross that Christ took our sin upon himself. And so may we never lose the wonder of that cross. The truth is, I hope we can all say, like Paul said, that we're not ashamed of the gospel in our lives. That we understand that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That's how we should live our lives. Unfortunately, it seems like some of the church today has lost that wonder. Lost the, lost the understanding of the power of the gospel and how that's just so central to everything we do. The cross is our only hope of salvation. It's the gospel. It's all we have. It is the greatest love story ever told. The cross is, is where we see all of God's love and all of God's righteousness in one place. He is so just and holy that he had to send his son to die and he loved us so much that he did. What an incredible thing. We, we can't lose that. We can't leave that. The cross, the gospel, is something that is available to all people, all kinds of people everywhere, even sinners like me. So I'm thankful for the cross. Uh, I want to read something that Jonathan Edwards wrote about the gospel and about the cross. And it, Tara read it to me this week. It struck me. Uh, and he's trying to compare how we feel about other things and then how we often feel about spiritual things about the gospel and how we sometimes seem to get so excited about things that, that don't really matter. And yet other things, spiritual things, eternal things, they just don't seem to excite us. They don't capture us. And so this is what he says. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century said, Our external delights, our ambition, and our reputation, and our human relationships, for all these things our desires are eager, our appetite strong, our love warm, and, and affectionate, our zeal ardent. Our hearts are tender and sensitive when it comes to these things, easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned, and greatly engaged. We are depressed at our losses and excited and joyful about our worldly successes and prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel. How heavy and hard our hearts. We can sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his giving his infinitely dear son, and yet be cold and unmoved. If we are going to be emotional about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable and desirable in heaven or earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel story is designed to affect us emotionally, and our emotions are designed to be affected by its beauty and glory. It touches our hearts at their tenderest parts, shaking us deeply to the core. We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are. I hope what he says affected you like it affected me. We, we ought to, to be moved by the cross. We ought never to lose that wonder. And, and the, the problem is we're a nation, a continent filled with churches that don't seem to take the gospel and the cross seriously. Do you understand that, that if, if there's a church 
that doesn't understand the gospel, they're not a church. It can't be a church unless you understand the gospel. They're a club, maybe a recycling club, maybe a humanitarian society or something, but it's not a church if we don't understand the gospel. And if, if there's a church that understands the gospel and is not excited about it, then they're missing the whole point of their existence. That's true for churches. That is true for people as well. If you don't understand the gospel, you are not a child of God. And if you're not excited about it, then you're missing your purpose. And so we ought to be excited about the gospel. And I am very glad. I, I feel like I'm yelling at you all right now. I'm not trying to yell at you all right now. I'm trying to say that I'm excited we're part of a church that, that is excited about the gospel. And so here we gather this morning to praise God for it. Not just, not just praise God for how great he is, and we should and we can, but we can praise God for what he's done for us. I'm excited to be able to do that this morning. I'm excited about the songs we sang already. And, and as we give, even that is an act of praise and worship to God to see his gospel go forth here in Chatham and, and throughout the world. It's my job now today to open up the word of God and to rightly divide the word of truth. Sometimes, for pastors, that, that's meant showing how all of those stories of the Old Testament are in this bigger redemption story. How everything that was done in the Old Testament points to the cross and points to the gospel. In my case, my task this morning is much, much easier. Because today we're in a text that, that has the gospel in full view. And so all I have to do is read it and hopefully show you more clearly what it means, and then you can leave here excited about the gospel. That's my goal. That's my hope this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson. Father, we love you. Lord, we are so thankful and humbled by the cross to know that at the cross you sent your Son, more precious than anything in this universe, um, the Son of the living God, to die on the cross for enemies, for sinners like us. Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the cross. Lord, I pray that you help us this morning to meditate on them. Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd allow your spirit to work in our hearts and to move us uh, to move us to emotion, Lord, and then to move us into action, to live as though we're those that have repented. Uh, God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't understand the gospel, I pray that this would be the morning that you would open their eyes, help them to see the truth of the gospel, the only hope we have of salvation. Uh, we love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we saw in our scripture reading this morning, we saw that Paul finds himself here a prisoner in Acts chapter 26. He has been a prisoner for a couple of years already. He will be for a few more years in Rome before ultimately he is killed for his faith. And each time he's gone before a judge, he's been found not guilty. So far there is no evidence for anything that he has done wrong. And yet they keep him in prison over and over again because they're trying to satisfy the Jews. The Jews hate Paul, they hate Christ, they hate the gospel, and they're doing everything they can to put an end to it. And so for them, that means ending Paul. Here we have King Agrippa show up, and we read this morning about how Paul began to give an answer for himself before King Agrippa. Now, you've got to picture this room. In this room, you have the king, you have the Roman procurator Festus, you have some Roman Kiliarchs, which are very high-ranking soldiers. You have the city officials. So you have a room full of the most important people in the city. If you are anybody in Caesarea, then you are here in this room. And then they bring Paul into the center of the room, and he's in prison clothes, he's shackled, and almost in a mocking form, they say, okay, give an answer for yourself. Well, Paul's excited about this opportunity because he has an opportunity now to give the gospel to all of these men 
and women. Bernice was there too. And so we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 26, verse 12. And here we're going to see how Jesus invaded the life of Paul. Acts 26, 12 says, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the prick. So here, Paul, is, is, he's got his own plan. He's got his own mission. He is going to Damascus to persecute and kill Christians. That's his goal. Jesus stops him in his tracks. He throws him off of his horse. He's laying on the ground and Jesus appears to him. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And that was a farming terminology. It was talking about oxen that would kick back against the sharp sticks and, and, and they would do it because they didn't like the sharp sticks. But the fact is, these prods were going to be there whether they liked it or not. And they were going to hurt if they kicked them. And so they may as well keep going forward. But this is terminology that, that meant, why are you fighting the will of God in your life? Why would you do that? Why would any of us kick against the pricks? He's saying, Paul, you're persecuting me. Don't do that. You're going against the will of God for your life. So stop it. In verse 15, Paul responds, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I shall appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And I have a new plan for you. I have a new purpose for you. I have a new mission for you. You are going to be a servant and a minister of the gospel. You're going to take the truth of, of my death and resurrection to the, the Gentiles and the Jews around the world. And then in verse 18, we have one of the most theologically packed verses that explain what happens at salvation. It says, To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Faith in Christ only. That's it. And that is the only thing that can open eyes. That is the only thing that can turn from darkness to light. That's the only thing that can turn from the power of Satan unto the power of God. We tend to see this world as, as like gray areas, like there are some decent people out there. Do you know how God sees the world? It's, it's those that are in the power of God and those that are in the power of Satan. Very clear distinction between darkness and light. The only way to receive forgiveness of sins is through faith in Christ. And that is now Paul's mission to bring that message to the world. Verse 19. Paul says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, Jesus invaded his life and he says, he showed me who I was. He showed me the gospel. He showed me truth. I responded. I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. And, and listen, this is important because when we understand truth, how foolish we are when we're disobedient to what God has revealed. See, we often want Jesus to appear from heaven. He's given us everything we need. You want a word from God? 
This is where you're going to find it. This is where you'll find his truth, in, in his word. And so we shouldn't be disobedient. Paul certainly wasn't. Verse 20. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So here we get a little bit bigger of a picture of what Paul was told to do. He said, I went to all of these places. He began in Damascus. He, be, he went to Jerusalem throughout the coast of Judea. And, and all of this would make sense to uh, Agrippa because he's, he's at least part Jewish. He understands this whole thing. The message of the Messiah should go to Jerusalem and Damascus and, and Judea. All of the Jews should hear the message of salvation. It makes sense to him. But then, I can't imagine his shock when he hears him say, and to the Gentiles. Because no Jew would expect God's plan of salvation to go to the Gentiles. But that was what Paul was commissioned to do, and that's what he does. He takes salvation to the Gentiles. And then he tells them what they're supposed to do. Number one, they're supposed to repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn away from or turn around. You're going one direction, you go the opposite direction. And not only do you repent, but you turn to God. The Bible often says repent and put faith in Christ. That is what salvation is. You turn from the direction you're going, you turn to God. Now, what, what exactly does that mean? See, I think in Canada, we have people, we have some people, they don't think they're sinners. And so repentance wouldn't make sense. Why would you turn from something that you're not really doing? Why would you need to find a new way when your way is already wonderful? So some people don't think they're sinners. Now, if you were to bring up the Ten Commandments like we could do today and say, well, have you, have you ever lied? Have you honored your parents forever? Have you put God first in your heart all the time? Then people would say, well, no, 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 I didn't do all that. But listen, when I look at the person beside me, when I look at the news, when I see people around the world, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person overall. God sees my heart. He sees that I'm good. See, we're judging by the, the wrong standard. Because you're right, God does see us. And he says every thought and intent of our hearts that was evil. He says everything we've ever thought evil, not, not just what we've done. And James chapter 2 verse 10 says, if we keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, we are guilty of all. And so every single one of us under the law of God stands guilty. But the problem with, one of the problems with Canada is that we see ourselves as generally good and that's good enough. And, and according to the word of God, it's just not good enough. We are so, so far from perfect, and God's standard is perfection. But I think the second problem, and maybe even more serious problem, is that we might recognize at times that we're sinners, but we don't think it's a big deal. It's like, yeah, I'm a sinner. You go through the Ten Commandments with somebody, okay, yeah, I've broken that. So what's the big deal? So has everybody. Who cares? Why does that matter? Well, we see why it's a big deal in God's reaction to it, don't we? as we see that the only solution to the problem of sin is to have his own son take upon human flesh, come to the earth and die on the cross? I mean, isn't that, doesn't that seem extreme to you? What kind of problem would it have to be for you to give up your child to die for somebody else, to die for an enemy? How bad would the situation have to be? You're just a human being. We're talking about the God of heaven, the God of the universe, with perfect love for his son, who saw that the only way that we could be saved from sin was to send his son to die for us. 
The problem of sin is a big problem. Whether the person at your work thinks it is or not, whether society, you know, society doesn't get to decide how bad a problem sin is. Society is, is sinners. It is the God that made this world that decides. And so we need to be very serious about our sin. Listen, if, if you have not taken care of your sin through Jesus Christ, if you don't know for sure he has, he has cleansed you, that his blood has washed you, that you've put your faith and trust in him, that you've repented and turned to God, you need to do that. In fact, you need to do that today. And if you stopped listening to me right now and you did that right now, I'd be good with it. Okay? Don't listen anymore. If you, if you haven't repented and turned to God, do it. But he doesn't just say repent and turn to God. He does. Then he says, and then he's supposed to tell them to bring forth the fruit, meat, for repentance. Well, the fruit would be the good works, uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit flowing their life. So there, there should be a different type of lifestyle, right? But then he says meat for repentance. What does the word meat mean? It's not like steak. It's meat. It means, if we think back to the Garden of Eden, when God looked at Adam and he saw that Adam was not good alone. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a help meet for him. The word meet. And what the word meet means is suitable or worthy of. And so it's not another Adam. It's not the same thing, but it's something that is equal with, not greater than, not less than, but suitable for, worthy of. And so when the Bible says that we're supposed to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, it's saying that our lives should now be suitable It should be worthy of the repentance that we've demonstrated. If we're going this direction where we're trusting ourselves, we're living in sin, and then we meet Christ and we repent and turn around and turn to God, then our life should reflect that all the time. How can we continue in this sin now knowing that it put our Savior on the cross? I'm not saying that there there are people that they get saved and from that point on they're just never sinning. They live a life of not sinning. But I think what he's saying here is that our lives should be, should be producing fruit on a continual, regular basis. And what happens when we do sin, when we do fall back, when we, when we turn from that, that walking toward God? Then we once again repent and get back to that. In 1 John 1.8 it says, If we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. So if you think that you're living this perfect now Christian life and that you're super righteous then you're a fool because the Bible says if you say you have no sin, then the truth is not in us. But the next verse says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we serve a God who when we, first we repent and turn to God, and then as we live this life of repentance, when we, when we fall off again, you know, when we sin again, then we can go back to him and confess and repent again and turn to him again. This is not renewing our salvation. This is, correcting that, that fellowship that we have. You know, I mean, we can't live a life of sin and then think that you're just, you have this close fellowship with God. And that's what we were designed for. Adam and Eve were designed distinct from the rest of creation in that we could have this wonderful relationship with our Creator. That's, that's our purpose. That's, that's what we're designed for. And so the way we get that is to live a life of constant repentance and constant fruit in our lives. So so Paul says here in verse 20, that is his mission. His mission is to tell Jews and Gentiles to repent and then to live a life of repentance that is suitable for repentance. Verse 21, 
For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Now, if that was Paul's mission, don't we see clearly that Paul was trying to live out that mission in his own life, right? Like he had repented, he had turned, he was on his way to Damascus to kill people for being a Christian. Now he is a Christian, he goes to Damascus to encourage them, to preach the gospel. I mean, his life changed completely. So he had repented, he had brought forth the fruit meat for repentance. That's what he was doing in his life. But then the very next verse says, When I was doing this, or even because I was doing this, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Doesn't that kind of suck? I did everything that God told me to do. I repented and I was living like it. And because I did it, the Jews caught me and they tried to kill me. Paul experienced incredible pain and suffering because he was a Christian. Because he was doing what he was supposed to do. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Well, that's because we have such a a temporal view of things. We don't think eternally. And if we were to to concentrate our lives on on eternal things, on heaven, it would be much easier for us to live this life and go through bumps and bruises and pain and suffering and say, listen, it's for the glory of God and He's got a plan in this and my job here is to live for eternity and not for myself today. So Paul was living right, but while he's living right, he goes through all of this pain and suffering, these trials. In fact, he's being mocked in this courtroom, he's in prison, and ultimately he's going to go to his death because he had repented and lived a life of repentance. But verse 22 helps us out. It says, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue, the word continue there means to stand. I'm continuing, I'm standing unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things other than those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, they went about to kill me. This was my situation. It was, it was very terrible, being persecuted. And the very next verse he says, having therefore obtained the help of God. Isn't, that, isn't this just a microcosm of the Christian life? As I was looking at this, I, I thought, repentance, live like it, go through pain, and then as you go through it, you get God's help. As you live the life you're supposed to live. See, some of us, we never really experience what it means to be comforted by God, to be helped by God, to be empowered by God, because we just never start living for Him. And if you never start living for Him, don't expect those things to happen. But when you're sold out for Christ like Paul was, and you go through suffering like all those that live godly in Christ Jesus will go through, the Bible tells us that, when we do those things, then it is so awesome to see God get beside you and help you and be there for you. God will be there for you. You know what? It wasn't just Paul. Do you know throughout the entire Bible we have stories of, of God telling people that he would be with them, that he would help them, and so they could live the life they were supposed to live for God because of God's presence. You think about Moses for a second. What did God tell Moses at the beginning of Moses' ministry when he met him at the burning bush? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, he says, And he said, so he told him all the things he had to do. This is your life. This is what I want from you. And he said, God said, certainly I will be with thee. Isn't that enough? Because God was with Moses, 
he, he served for 80 years. A wonderful testimony. Now Moses, again, wasn't perfect, but he did some incredible things, right? You look back at the Old Testament, it's hard to find a guy that's more, that was used by God in a greater way than Moses. It's because God was with him. And then Moses, at the end of his life, when he was speaking to Israel, see, he remembers this. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, says to Israel, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. He says, Israel, I'm about to die, but you don't need me. It's not about Moses. You have God, and he will go with thee, and he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So you'll be okay. See, God will be with those that are living right, that, that, are, that are being obedient. And then Joshua takes over for Moses, after Moses' death. And God says to Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. I am with you. You don't have to be afraid. Be strong. Find the strength that comes in his presence so that you can do what God wants you to do in your life. God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. And then the author of Hebrews says to the Hebrew believers in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conversation, your lifestyle, be without covetousness. And he'd already given a list of what it means to live the Christian life. And so the last one here is live a life that is not covetous. He says, be content with such things as you have, for he has said, so remember the, the power and the strength we need to live the life that he has asked us to live, to not be covetous and all the other things he said prior to that. He says, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Paul had God's help. And when we see Paul's life, I hope we don't see a man who is strong in himself. I hope we see a man who is helped by God. And it was simple obedience. Living a life meet for repentance. And so that's what we see there in Acts chapter 26, verse 22. But there are a couple other things as I read that verse that I do want to quickly point out to you. And just, just in case you're like really worried right now, my plan was just to go through the text to make application as we go and then to have a conclusion. Okay? So you don't have a half an hour in front of you. We're getting toward the end. Okay? But there are two things more that I wanted to point out from Acts chapter 26, verse 22. He says, witnessing both to small and great. Paul is clear that, that although he's in this room speaking to these great and important people, that the gospel that he's preaching to them is a gospel for everybody, for small and great alike. It is a gospel for the prostitute who's caught in the act, small and great. It's a gospel as much for these men that are hearing it as it is for the farmers that, that surround their city or for the beggars that are at their city gates, or for the lepers that have been kicked out of the city. Those, those people need the gospel just as much, and this gospel is just as powerful to save them. And, and it's not a different gospel, because all people, great and small, find themselves in the same problem. We're all sinners. We're all sinners condemned by a holy God. He is, he's a just and righteous judge. And so every single one of us, 
both great and small, we, we will stand before God someday. This gospel is the only hope that, that every one of us has. Then he goes on and he says, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. And I think that is important because he's making it clear that his message is from the Word of God. He wasn't saying more. He wasn't saying less. He wasn't changing the Word of God. He wasn't watering it down. He wasn't adding to it. He wasn't making more laws like the Pharisees had done. He just says, I am telling you what the prophets said in the Word of God. It's all in there. That Jesus, the Messiah, would come. That He would suffer and die. That He would be this suffering servant. Isaiah 53. That He would rise again from the dead. That He would be a Savior for all people. For Gentiles included. All of that is in the Old Testament. So Paul, is, his authority is very clearly the Word of God. I think that's important to us. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, we repent. We repent. Acts 17.30, Paul is speaking on Mars Hill. He says, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. If you haven't done that yet, if you haven't repented of your sin and turned to Christ, you need to do that. Trust Him as your Savior. The second thing is, we need to live like we've repented. Works are not the basis of salvation, but they are the inevitable result of a genuine experience of turning to God in Christ. When you have real saving faith, your life must change. It will. It can't not change. If your experience has been, oh, I said a quick prayer, and then nothing in my life ever changed, I was never convicted, and, and I, I lived in the same sin that I did before, that quick prayer didn't save you. Because you didn't have true faith. You didn't repent and turn to God. And when that happens, then we need to live the life that's suitable for, that's worthy of repentance. So live like we've repented. Our life must match our confession and our profession. Number three, we need to expect trials. Expect trials. They occurred for Paul. They occurred for everybody that we find in the Bible that live godly in Christ Jesus. They will occur for you. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Christ meant carrying a cross. And so expect trials. But number four, with the help of God, stand firm. With God's help, we can stand. Faithfulness is the key. There's a lot of people that are living their Christian lives and they want to see this, this great and fantastic miracle because of one act of faith. That is not what most of Christian life is. Most of your life is, is mundane, right? It is every day waking up and deciding that you're still going to pray and you're still going to open up the Word of God. You're still going to ask God to speak to you even though that day you're not going to be in a situation like Paul is today. Even though that day is probably going to be a very normal day. The Christian life is day in and day out walking with God. It's not a one faith event. Be faithful. And so with the help of God, we can stand firm in our faith. We can live those mundane days for the glory of God. We need to repent. We need to live like we've repented. We should expect trials, but with the help of God, we can stand firm. Uh, you're here today, and I don't know why the Holy Spirit has you here today. I don't know what the Holy Spirit has for you today. 
if He has spoken to your heart in any way, if He's shown you your need of salvation, repent and trust Him. If He's shown you that there's something in your life where you're not acting like you've repented, you're continuing to allow sin in your life, repent of that sin and turn to Him. Whatever He has spoke to you about, we must get it right. Paul is no superhuman Christian. He was just obedient. And we need more people that... I mean, we think of Paul as being crazy, don't we? Like he was just fanatical. He wasn't. I mean, maybe he was compared to. He was what Christianity is supposed to look like. We are supposed to, each one of us, repent and turn from our sin and live for God. And our life should be now about glorifying the Savior that saved us. Why are you so wrapped up in what's going on around us? We're wrapped up in what we want. We're so selfish. Repent of that and turn to God. And then live like it. Maybe you are going through troubles. Maybe you're in a season of trial. And I just want to encourage you, as we live for God, He is there to help us. You might not know where the strength is going to come from, but it will come from Him. There are so many things that people experience and I have no idea how they go through them. But when they do, God gives them what they need. Be encouraged that God is with us through our trials.